Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi, everybody. Hi, Dr. Nick. Oh, yes, hello, everybody again. It's Dr. Nick here. Welcome to Radiotherapy. With misdiagnosis still overseas, I'm delighted to be joined here in the studio this morning by two of our regular panellists. We've got scientist, psychotherapist, Prudence Deer, and academic sociologist, and master of the buttons and knobs. Panel beater, panel beater, how are you on this freezing cold morning? I'm keeping warm. I got in nice and early, so feeling snug as a bug in a rug. You did better than I did, and the forecast said 30 percent chance of rain so is my cup half full i assumed it was 70 percent not going <laughs> to yeah. rain so of course i got soaked on the way in <laughs> and prudence good morning to you you've good got morning. a special guest for us this morning haven't you? i have yes i've got dr tram noin who's going to join us a psychiatrist from the um, royal children's hospital gender service excellent should be exciting a bit later and we will actually possibly be talking we're going to talk about mental health and we we may well cover topics like uh, suicide and self-harm so just a heads up if that's not your thing Okay, just to let people know, that'll be coming up around about ten past. Um, and our other guest this morning is Dr. Kim Mulholland. Now, uh, normally I avoid talking about anything to do with COVID, uh, but when the chance came out for us to chat with Kim, I couldn't resist uh, because he's a paediatrician and vaccine expert. And he works with the World Health Organization, and he has some very interesting views about what we've been doing, and not just here in Oz, but worldwide, and what's going to happen in the future. So we'll be talking with Kim in the second half of the show. And uh, remember, if you'd like to get in touch with us, please whiz us a message on our text line, which is 0466981027. That's 0466981027. We love hearing from you, so get those nimble thumbs to work. Oh, but first, before that, it's... <laughs> 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 Oh, my goodness, that sounds like a Dachshund crossed with a terrier or something. What have we got for us today, Panel Peter? Actually, I forgot to write down which one that was. <laughs> Non-specific. It had four legs. Yes, non-specific, Mark. Yes, it's the Dog Park shout-out here at 3 Triple R. We love all animals, from aardvarks to axolotls, but... We don't, don't see many, many of those in the park, park do we? <laughs> so dogs it is. Uh, and today it's the turn of Marley... Um, an absolutely gorgeous mutt, but a ball thief. Now, Ooh, Prudence, have you yeah. ever had a ball-obsessed dog? Yeah, Charlie. Charlie was a um, cross uh, beagle, and uh, he was obsessed with balls everywhere. And the, the, it's got to be embarrassing because we'd be in the park, and even though I had a ball and a ball thrower and everything, he always wanted to play with someone else, and he would chase everybody else's balls, yes. and he'd beat the, so beat the owner to the ball every time. Mm-hmm. And you get these really kind of rude looks basically yes. so what is the dog park etiquette when your dog has stolen the ball and the owner of the ball wants to leave the park well, and think, can't get the ball back well i think it's kind of up to you to i think you've got to put a limit it's like you know you can let them chase the ball three times and then you've got to call them back and well, just let them play let the owner play with their dog dr nick we've uh, had a, a, a wisecrack on the text line <laughs> Here we really? go. come on then <laughs> sounded like a rottweiler that just had a helium balloon <laughs> 
And what's the difference between a Rottweiler... No, hang on, this is a very bad joke about social workers. I can't remember. What's, what's the difference between a Rottweiler and a social worker? You can sometimes get the child back from the Rottweiler. <laughs> Boom-tish. Uh, oh, dear. <laughs> oh, our lines have gone dead. <laughs> anyway, if anyone of our listeners has the answer to the dog park etiquette ball thief uh, conundrum, please text in and let us know, because it drives me nuts sometimes. I want to leave the park. There's an owner waving treats at their errant hound and I'm stuck for another five minutes. Anyway, that's quite enough of the dog park shout out. We'll be coming back to you in a minute with some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Panel BT, you've got some news for us this morning. I was in a, uh, yeah, very whimsical this morning. I was in a bit of a chat with my uh, young, darling nieces and nephews and the uh, and the conversation went to, should we use hankies or tissues? Oh, nice one. And um, you'd think straight off the bat, it's pretty obvious. You'd think it's pretty obvious, wouldn't you? You go, well, if you take the germ uh, aspect, you go with tissues. The, the old sight of someone sneezing and coughing into a piece of cloth and then putting it back in their pocket and then carrying on eating without sanitising. <laughs> but I made the big mistake of... <laughs> Having an opinion? <laughs> no, of, of Googling. Oh, okay. <laughs> and the internet. You mean, you there's, there's, there's two kinds of people in this world. <laughs> so you used your favourite search engine. <laughs> there is, uh, yes, yes, got the Google fingers on. Um, there are two kinds of people in this world. Um, you might think it's cat people or dog people. No, it's hanky people or it's tissue people. Mm. Um, and, and, and look, I'll, I'll, I'll go to the punchline first. It's t- what I reckon in summary is it's not which is better or worse, it's how you use them that matters. Uh, always the way. Not how big it is, how you... No, no, keep going. So, so if, you, if, we take, if we take the default position that one of the great things about a tissue um, is that they're very instantly disposable um, and therefore there's really limited um, uh, contact and chance of spread and you can mitigate all of those issues. Okay, tick. Tissues win. Wonderful. But is that actually how people use them is the uh-huh. thing? And perhaps they don't, right? And so there's there's that particular issue. Um, the uh, the hanky, um, conceivably, if people are just keeping it on their person um, and perhaps keeping it in a pocket especially, in other words, not putting it in a bag or a purse because uh, that could spread things onto other items, but just keeping it in a pocket, um, that, that you can actually kind of mitigate that so long as you're washing it just like you wash your undies. But surely if you've used your hanky, put it in your pocket, your hand's in that pocket, everything that's on the hanky is on your hands. Right, so you're supposed to wash your hands after every use, aren't you? Ah, just yes. like you blow with the tissue. So that kind of like 50-50 on that one. Um, and then, of course, you can go to the environmental issue and on the environmental um, matter um, it, it becomes a bit tricky to work it out on that face as well because tissues aren't compostable because the um, germ factors so they're landfill there's billions of people using billions and billions of tissues so, so I can pull it, tissues are not compostable because of the germs is that right? right? not after you've used them 
So we shouldn't be chucking them in the compost thing in the That's kitchen right. bin. Yeah, well, not according to all the stuff I was reading anyway. I yeah. thought that was full of yeah. germs anyway. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, Different ones. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there's there's all of that, and of course all the trees that go into the paper that goes into the um, uh, issue. Uh, then of course there's the bleaching of the tissues uh, for you know the pollution and greenhouse effects in Australia for number nerds, uh, two hundred and seventy three thousand tons of um, of uh, of tissues are used in Australia, and most of those so how most much? of that. 273,000 tonnes. Oh, my right? goodness. And most of that is uh, virgin fibre tissue. Wow. Right? So and I suppose you have to balance that against how many gazillion tonnes of phosphates get pumped into the oceans through washing all those hankies. Right. So then you've got the washing of the hankies. You've got the fact that it might not be and is likely not to be GMO uh, cotton. Um, so there's a whole lot of things. And we know that uh, cotton industry is full of modern slavery. So there's all of that kind of issue. Um, and, uh, and, of course, there's bleaching and colouring that goes into hankies as well. So headline, takeaway, um, not so much which is better or worse, it's how you use them, and maybe it's going to end up being a combination of both. And it reminds me very much of the sort of mask debate, um, that masks are a good thing, but um, patients I see in the surgery every single day fiddle with their masks literally multiple times every minute, contaminating hands and then touching seats and everything else. Yeah. And so, like so many things in life, it's not whether the thing itself is right or wrong, but how you use it. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just thinking as well. Anyway, like, what are we supposed to buy Grandma for Christmas if it's not a set of hankies? <laughs> oh, <laughs> nice with beers. You can't buy Grandma's nice perfume <laughs> tissues, and it doesn't. Do it. <laughs> and and Boy Scouts are supposed to carry a hanky at all times. Is that right? I Be prepared. Oh, yep. yeah, and have one in your top pocket just to look good. That's right. There is that. Yeah, well, we don't want the infectious diseases physicians turning in their graves and texting in by, by the drove. So we'll accept that it's either tissues or hanky. The, the way you use it matters more than exactly which you use. So use it responsibly and everything will be fine. Thank you, Panel Beater. That was absolutely fascinating. <laughs> fascinating might be overstating it. Uh, I'm fascinated. <laughs> You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We've yeah. got a very special guest, haven't we, Prince? We've got a very, very special guest, actually, Nick. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Dr. Tram Noyne is a, a consultant psychiatrist in the Department of Adolescent Medicine and part of the gender service out of our very own Royal Children's Hospital here in Melbourne. So it's uh, lovely to have you here, Tran. Thanks for coming and joining us this morning. Thank you, Prudence. And um, just call me Tram because that's what my patients call me. (laughs) And my pronouns are she and her. And I'd really just like to take a moment to acknowledge that we're meeting here on Wurundjeri land, unceded. And I'd really like to pay my respects to elders past and present and really uh, honour the gender diversity that sits within First Nations communities within Australia. Magic, thank you. I'd also like to say that I'm very nervous because this is, I'm a long time first time. Fantastic. Well, you're so welcome and we'll try and make this as sort of comfortable for you as possible. Yeah, thank you. I've just been, uh, I've just travelled in from the, the lands of the Jajawarung, so that's where I live and that's a great place too. So the gender service at the uh, Children's Hospital. So when, when we talk about transgender and things like gender dysphoria, can we cover some terminologies here perhaps? Could you give us some, what does all this mean? Certainly, Prudence. Um, we'll... 
we won't deep dive into gender dysphoria. We'll start with some basic terms. And so our gender is different from our sex, which is assigned to us from birth when a midwife or a doctor won't say it's a boy and it's a girl, and it's based on our anatomical features. Or there may be prenatal testing through chromosomal testing or ultrasounds that that then Mm -hmm. assign us as male or female. Gender, on the other hand, is an internal sense of self, which is deep and personal and very individual, which may be felt as male, female, both, neither, or somewhere in between, and it's a spectrum rather than a binary male or female tick box. So for most of us, our gender identity aligns with our um, sex assigned at birth, but for some people, this isn't aligned, and for these people... They are considered either gender diverse or transgender Mm -hmm. and includes people who identify as non-binary, neither male nor female. And so for people who are not trans, um, they're referred to as cis, so I'm a cisgendered female. So that's spelled C-I-S, isn't it? C-I-S, which means on the same side. In Latin words, trans is on the other side. And so so that's gender identity and that's that internal Mm -hmm. feeling. Gender expression, on the other hand, is how a person, either trans or cis, might express that to the external world through their appearance, through their looks, um, their dress, their behaviour, and that can change from day to day. So I might decide to be very very feminine in my presentation one day and on another day be quite androgynous. So so that's gender expression, which is different from gender identity. Then comes gender gender dysphoria. So gender dysphoria is a distress that um, a trans person might feel with regards to the incongruence between their felt gender identity and their sex assigned at birth. So not all transgender people will feel gender dysphoria and a lot of gender dysphoria is exacerbated by external factors. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so that's important, isn't it? Not everybody, like, who might be transgender or who might feel that, you know, identify as transgender in one form or another, is necessarily distressed to the degree where they get a kind of diagnosable condition, yes. which is the dysphoria. That's and, right. Okay. And I can talk to some of that. So, yeah. for instance, there might be, uh, say, a teenage boy... Um, who tells me that um, when he's misnamed or misgendered at school on on the roll, he makes him feel so sick in his stomach. He Mm -hmm. starts shaking with anxiety and it makes him feel really bad about himself. And when he's around cisgendered boys at school, he really notices the discrepancy between him and them in um, in his appearance and it reminds him of what he's not, including his voice. And so his experience of gender dysphoria can lead him to, you know, leaving the classroom, missing out on school, not participating right. in school discussions. Okay. Um, but but, but yeah. internally, when he's by himself, there might be another story to this, yeah. where he sees himself just as a boy. He yeah. forgets that how others perceive him, how they code him as female, and he might not feel any dysphoria. Okay. So it might be situational. So, yeah, so quite a lot's actually kind of around societal expectations that we have stereotypes of yeah. behaviour yeah. and presentation and how what you're supposed to do. I mean, this this we see from quite early ages where we, you know, we, we categorise and we get kids to line up, you know, with girls on one side, boys Definitely. on the other, and school uniforms, for example, have traditionally had different uniforms forms for girls from boys so 
it's so, so, so a, lot, a lot of that distress you're saying then can be due to, yeah, just the way that, the, the, yeah. that our surroundings, the way that people react to us um, can alter how we feel about ourselves and can be upsetting yes. in the extreme. And for some people, there's also how people feel about themselves as well. So it might mm. not just be the external, right. it might be at times when they're showering, looking in the mirror, getting changed, mm. getting dressed, going to the toilets. Um, they might be all triggers for their gender dysphoria. Can, um, can, can I just term. ask a question about the school uniform question? Because um, I had a, a young woman, she was a woman, I suppose she's 18, still at school, um, but she turned up in long trousers. And it was the first time I'd seen a school girl wearing long pants. Now, she identifies as female. Um, but I thought, this is fantastic because it means it doesn't matter what gender you present as, uh, you can choose uh, what you want to wear. How much difference does that sort of thing make to people in this situation? I think it makes a huge difference. And I must say, whether you're, not, whether you're cis or gender diverse, I don't think anybody is um, advantaged by narrow stereotyping and that if we're free to address it, to dress how we feel, then we can be more comfortable. But I, I really applaud schools moving to an all-gendered uniforms and yeah. that you can choose. There's no boys' or girls' uniform. There is a skirt. There is a dress. There, is, there are pants. There are shorts. But anyone can wear any of those. Very simple change. So effective. Yeah. And mostly to wear sportswear anyway now. It's just sort of... Uh, Tracky pants. Polo top. Polo top. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, so, uh, like, you know, when do, when do people become aware, perhaps, or say that they've, they don't feel that their, their identity fits with that which they were given or presumed when they were, you know, when they came into the world? What, what's the sort of, you know, what, is it, does it always happen when people are very young or does, does it sometimes happen later in life, do you know? I think it can happen at any time in life. Yeah. What we do know about gender identity development or gender understanding is that for young people, um, whether they're cis or trans, um, from about two to three years they begin to understand stereotyping of whether someone is male, female or other, or they're not sure. So they can go down the street and say, that's a woman and that's a man. And that's similar for cis and trans young people. And But then how they feel about themselves can also develop at that point in time. Right. For other people, when they're not grown up, in, not brought up in a, such a gendered world, they might not see themselves as mm-hmm. trans or think it as a thing if it's never been um, imposed upon them and it might be later when they develop some of the um, characteristics of uh, impending puberty that it may become right. more obvious to them. And yeah. we also know that with more information, people are more aware of gender diversity. So uh, large studies of adults show that for lots of trans adults, they might have known from a young age but never had the words mm-hmm. or the possibilities to express it. Um, yes, that's right. There are some classic kind of what I call the classic narratives of people who from a very early age kind of knew they didn't fit. But they, yes, as you say, if this was like 30, 40 years ago, we didn't have much language. Whereas now I think there's quite an extensive kind of vocabulary as we have, you know, in terms of trans and cis and non-binary and terms like that and pronouns, things that I think m- m- many more people are much more aware and actually young people in particular have a much greater awareness of that. So do you feel that, you know, does that make it safer for younger people as they are growing up, do you think, that they 
they can explore their gender a bit more? I hope it does. I really hope it does. I hope that we can see the examples of young children in terms of all kinds of diversity and their acceptance of difference and embrace that. But there are communities where it's not as accepted and that makes it a lot harder for young people Mm. to talk about their internal experiences. And it can lead to things such as internalised transphobia and really questioning of themselves and possibly a delaying of expressing their gender identity to others. So internalised transphobia, so a kind of, you know, dislike of trans, sort of gender transness in people. It actually, like, comes from within themselves. They actually kind of turn on themselves in a way. Yeah, and and sort of internalising that sense that being trans is wrong. There's something wrong with me and I can't possibly tell the world about this because I'm actually saying that there's something wrong. And we're hoping with visibility and information and embracing diversity that we can make safe places for children to express themselves. Now, you're a psychiatrist, so that immediately (laughs) rings a bell, doesn't it? That flags for people that we're going to be talking about mental illness or mental health. So what, yeah, I mean, what are the mental health implications of being transgender, especially for young people, perhaps? So... um, I'd like to say that it's improving overall Mm -hmm. and that some of the mental health implications relate to how uh, trans people have been treated within community. So it is very clear that any efforts to restrict or to convert a trans child uh, or a person to align with their assigned sex is psychologically damaging and Mm -hmm. can in fact be fatal. a large study, Australian study, the Trans Pathway Study, um, which looked at um, adolescents in Australia, showed that there are much higher rates of multiple mental health disorders in trans young people, such as over 70% who have been diagnosed with depression, similarly, yeah. similar numbers for anxiety, and that nearly 80% in that study had self-harmed and nearly 50% had, uh, had yeah. made at least one attempt at suicide. And when we look at the qualitative data from that study, what young people are saying is that it's accumulation of discrimination, abuse, exclusion, um, acts of bullying, family violence, transphobia, Mm -hmm. which has led to these mental health impacts. And it's not necessarily um, due to being trans in itself. No, it's 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 the way our environment responds to that, yeah. and it's a difficult time when, especially you know, as a, an adolescent, for example, when you're going through trying to determine who your identity is in the first place, to be working through something really quite complex like this needs, I, I imagine, quite a lot of support. It definitely does. But yeah. what we do know, what's a really positive thing, is that we do know that if um, we reduce the gender dysphoria, if parents are really Supportive, So parents are the most protective factor uh, yeah. for young people and the overwhelming support of parents um, will reduce the risk of mental illness and mm-hmm. when young people are affirmed in their genders, then their gender identity, then their mental health outcomes um, then get to the level of their cisgendered peers. So right. we can help this. It can make a big difference. Yeah. And so when you say affirmed, so what does a parent, what can a parent do that's affirming if their child, you know, rocks up or over dinner or something says, by the way, I'm transgender, I think I'm transgender, what can they do to be affirming? Um, 
Prudence, quite often it doesn't happen over dinner. Sometimes it happens <laughs> over, you know, over text when someone started to send oh, a text right, yeah. and delete and send it again or slip a letter on a pillow. And, and sometimes it's taken the young person quite a long time to reach this point because mm. their parents mean a lot to them. And I, I think we can all relate to the fact that none of us want to hurt, disappoint uh, our parents. And so when they do come to talking about, uh, talking about this to their parents, the first thing the parents can say is just say thank you for telling me mm. and just affirming that, you know, I love you no matter what. I love you as a person that you are. And then asking the young person what it is that they would like in their next steps. And it may be at that time just acknowledging and accepting. And it may be, I know lots of parents who then go and do all the research in the background to find out about places like our gender clinic Mm -hmm. um, at the children's and look to getting supports for their young person on their journey. And I've certainly seen, I think, that, um, yeah, it's really simple things, you know, like if, if... The child would like you to use a different pronoun. Um, then just doing that yes. um, and not making a big issue out of it can be a really simple, affirmative sort of action. And if they want to change their name in some way, I mean, you know, often our kids, you know, have nicknames. They have name changes. It's not like it's the end of the world if they decide they want to be called something else or their friends call them something else. So, again, a parent can just adopt adapt yes. to that. They don't need a psychiatrist. They don't need a doctor to help them with that. It's a very simple but very powerful message of acceptance for the young person. And and can I just reinforce that? Because what you're saying to me is very, very important because I imagine how difficult it would be for a parent sometimes when they hear this for the first time from their child. So what I'm hearing you say, Tram, is first up, just support, uh, reaffirm your love and support for the person. Uh, Go and get some information, um, be prepared to support them, uh, what you're saying, prudence with whatever pronoun or name they're choosing. I mean, it would be very hard, wouldn't it, if you've you've brought up your little girl with a, a female name and she suddenly says, I want to be called Jim. But people get used to it. Um, so uh, it takes time, but it's not impossible, as you're saying, Prince. And, uh, and, and yes, there are many layers to this. And so a lot of the work that we have, uh, that we do at the gender service is supporting parents. And we also re- um, recommend they reach out to some of the parent groups, um, Transcend and Parents of Gender Diverse Children. But we also take time, I certainly take time to speak with parents on their own. It gives them a chance to... Um, uh, to tell me about the story of their young person so I can understand that, but also for them to ask questions or to express their anxieties and sadness or grief without the young person being there and for the the parents to not feel that they need to hold back for fear of hurting their young person. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, it is, it is, there is a sense of loss for parents, isn't there? I mean, they, they've got a whole, again, probably, you know, a gendered view of the future around their child and, you know, whether... And particularly, um, perhaps, around um, them having children. That The grandchildren is often a very important part of family and the future. And so... Well, can we even do we have any ideas in terms of how we manage that to some extent? Is there, imp- in, you know, is there consequences of being transgender and fertility? I think is where I'm going, and how do we advise people about that? That's a very big conversation, Prudence. <laughs> but we do, we do, for, for, fertility preservation is something yeah. we do discuss with families. Um, or families that go through with us. But uh, I think uh, I'm hearing 
a bit less of that from parents. And mm. actually what parents talk to me about is that they're concerned about will their young person be discriminated against? Will they be hurt by others? How will they enter relationships? Will they um, find someone who will love them mm. even before reproduction? So these are really valid concerns and parental worries. Right. Okay. Now you've mentioned thanks. So you mentioned a couple of organisations there. So there's Transcend. Transcend, which so, was started by Rebecca Robertson, a mother right. of trans girl, Georgia yeah, Stone. Georgia Stone. Yes. Yep. And there's also a Facebook group, uh, Parents of Gender Diverse Children. Yeah. Okay. So you can Google those or you find them on those, Facebook. Google those, or if you go to if you Google the Royal Children Children's Hospital Gender Service, we do have links and resources on our website as well. Fantastic. So that's that's useful, certainly, obviously, for parents and families. So, you know, um, what about, um, and, and I guess similarly for young trans people, if they need to get, if they want to talk to somebody or get some help, have we got any, um, can they find yes, resources from our, the children's hospital? And there are lots of community groups that run out of local centres, and there's also Minus 18, which is an online um, Group yeah. as well. Yeah, and actually, they have some fantastic short videos. If you go to minus yes. 18 trans 101, so trans 101.org.au, I think, or something like that, very good little short videos about what trans and identity is all about in young people. I love that video. I've watched them multiple yeah, times. I, I also love the video on our website, which makes me cry each time I watch it. Uh, Tram, thank you so much. That was absolutely fantastic. We could talk about this all morning. Unfortunately, time is upon us. Um, that was the fabulous Dr Tram Nguyen from the, um, the Royal Children's Hospital Gender Clinic. Um, and if these discussions have raised any issues for you, you can contact Rainbow Door on one 800 729 367 or Q Life on 1800 184 527 or if necessary Lifeline 131114. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Our next guest, we have paediatrician and vaccine expert, Dr. Kim Mulholland. Now, Kim has spent most of the last 30 years working on vaccine issues, mostly in poorer communities. And he leads a research group at the Melbourne Children's Research Institute. And he's also has a role at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in Vaccinology. And he's a member of the WHO SAGE. It's an absolute brilliant and very wise acronym standing for Strategic Advisory Group of Experts. They left out the I for immunisation, because I guess then the acronym would be SAGI. Um, not quite so bad, but he joins us on the phone. Hi, Kim. Hi, Nick. How are you this morning? Not too saggy, I hope. <laughs> no, thanks. I've just been enjoying listening to your programme up to now, and I must say the the, the, the previous discussion just, uh, just warmed my heart. I mean, it's really great to hear this discussion, and, and I was really... Uh, I thought it was just fantastic, so uh, compliments to everybody involved. Oh, th- th- thanks, Kim, and it's lovely to have you on the phone, and thank you for your time. Um, you're not in Melbourne at the moment. Where are you? I'm in Janjuk. It's about 100 kilometres southwest of Melbourne uh, on the coast. So you've just had the morning surf, have you? Um, not yet this morning. Uh, it's a bit cool this morning, but um, no, I've, uh, I've, this is a, a beach house that we converted actually just before the pandemic 
um, into a kind of like an office house uh, for me to work when I'm away from the children's hospital. Well, let's let's get talking about vaccines. First of all, you've done a lot of work overseas and with the WHO. I'm very interested in this expert advisory group, which until I got your bio, I'd never even heard of. So talk to me a little bit about what your role is with the WHO and vaccines. Yeah, well, the SAGE committee is um, it's rather a unique committee within WHO. WHO, of course, has dozens of uh, advisory groups in just about every field of health. But the SAGE committee um, was really established a bit over 20 years ago, and its, um, its role is to advise the Director-General of the WHO on vaccine policy. And um, in that respect, uh, it has a sort of a direct line to the Director-General, and after the SAGE meetings, which in the pre-pandemic era used to take place in person at least twice a year, uh, there would be a communique and um, the new um, de- deliberations or the changes in policy that um, resulted from the meeting would be um, ratified, as it were, and, um, and um, uh, w- would come from the Director-General as policy within a few days. So it's kind of a unique um, uh, organisation or it's a unique committee within WHO, but it's not the only oversight committee in the vaccine field, and there are, um, there's another group that really oversees the regulatory and the vaccine production side and they also have to pass vaccines. And it sounds like a huge piece of work and you as an Australian are on that committee. How many people are on it? Uh, there's 15 um, but the uh, uh, with the SAGE, uh, sorry, excuse me, with the COVID vaccine field there are um, a number of the members who are, are not able to vote on um, on issues because of their connection with uh, some of the industry trials and things going on. So there have been um, 10 to 15 that have been voting on the, uh, on, on the specific issues related to COVID. And if we, if we think about this committee having been up and running for a very long time, so obviously well pre-COVID, was there anything that the committee had ever considered prior to this pandemic occurring about how pandemic preparedness should be? Um, I can't answer that directly because I've only been on the committee for two years Um, and um, I I know that there has been uh, quite a lot of discussion about pandemic preparedness at the WHO level and at other levels and CEPI, the so-called Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation um, was uh, really the result of some of that discussion that took place between uh, different international agencies um, four or five years ago um, in advance of COVID, you could say. And, and so CEPI is there really to try and help uh, deal with pandemic situations. So people have been ready for this. And certainly with the previous experiences we had with coronaviruses, with SARS and MERS, um, I think um, most people in the field had a feeling that something was coming. And you have a particular interest and experience and expertise in um, work in poorer countries. We're well familiar that in some of the developed countries, Australia being a good example, that vaccine rates are very high. Um, It's rather dropped out of public consciousness and the news what the rates are in developing countries. There was a lot of talk about providing vaccines and making sure that we did this equitably. Uh, Can you talk to us a little bit about where we've got to with that side of things? I think it's been awful, to be honest. The, uh, the, the, the inequity that's been exposed uh, in vaccine provision uh, around the world has been uh, really pretty disgraceful. And uh, if one looks at the, at the uh, countries and their, um, their vaccine coverage, 
uh, up to now, then Africa just sort of stands there as being largely unvaccinated. And, um, I mean, that's perhaps the worst example. There are other areas, and, of course, Papua New Guinea is one of the worst vaccinated countries, perhaps for different reasons. But the, um, the inequity that's been exposed um, has been awful. And uh, it's, it's changed. The situation has changed a bit this year Mm-hmm. Because at the beginning of the year, um, the WHO was really hoping to get to something like 70% coverage by mid-year. 70% coverage and of what, of developing countries? Of the world, really. Right. Um, but they're really taking over the, the developing country situation. And um, the, 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 the field has changed a little bit because vaccines are no longer uh, the limiting factor. In other words, vaccine supply has improved to the extent that there probably is now almost enough vaccine to vaccinate everybody in the world. But there are other factors that are standing in the way of um, equitable distribution and of uh, providing vaccines for the poorest uh, countries. So um, we still see much of Africa unvaccinated. And not surprisingly, um, the last two um, um, variants or the last two major variants that have appeared um, have both come from Southern Africa. So, you know, we really, um, we're, uh, you know, we're, um, I guess, in a situation where we can um, expect um, more variants and, and more changes in the virus to come from the unvaccinated communities. And that's uh, really a problem. And if we think about sticking with vaccination in developing countries, I mean, it's very difficult providing um, vaccines like Pfizer, which is the one that we do at my workplace at the moment, even with all the best facilities because of the complications around cold chain and freezing and mixing and that sort of thing. Uh, What vaccines are we using in developing countries and how are they managing those complexities? That's a great question. Um, It really has been a big issue as well, especially with Pfizer. Um, the, um, the, the, uh, most of the countries, if we look at um, what their primary series has been, that is the, um, their initial vaccination, most of the poorer countries have relied on um, Chinese vaccines or the AstraZeneca vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, AstraZeneca has been provided on a large scale by the COVAX uh, uh, organisation, which is a sort of organisation of the um, various multilateral, um, um, you know, WHO, UNICEF and so on, um, to try and and provide um, at least a basic level of immunisation for coverage in um, all countries of the world. So most countries have had access to to AstraZeneca to some extent. Um, Then the Chinese vaccines, particularly Sinopharm and Sinovac, have been used on quite a large scale. And um, that's um, that's been an issue, of course. And uh, uh, there are other vaccines that have been used which um, haven't been available in Western countries, such as, for example, the Sputnik vaccine from Russia. And why, and why so, do you say Sinopharm and Sinovac are an issue? Well, they they do work, but their um, effectiveness seems to be more short-lived. And um, the result has been that countries that have relied on these vaccines um, have not really seen the level of control of disease and mortality, really, that they would have expected based on the initially measured effectiveness of vaccines. Uh And I think the the reason for that is probably because the effectiveness um, is short-lived. And, in in fact, I I think um, with Sinovac that... It may have been better for them to go for a three-dose schedule to start with because um, they did show with some of their early experiments that the third dose made quite a difference. And um, 
I think we're now seeing uh, increasingly people imagining that true vaccination against COVID requires three doses. So I want to come back to the AstraZeneca side of things because, of course, here in Australia, that's what we began with. I had my primary course with AZ and was absolutely fine, but then there was a lot of outcry and fear about the possible side effects, but we're saying that's one of the main vaccines used in developing worlds. Do you know, have they kept any data about whether there has, has been a large number of uh, clots and uh, side effects reported in developing countries using AZ? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. The ETS that you're referring to, which is the clotting disorder, um, is um, was of course reported here and uh, in, in the UK and, uh, and Europe and so on. Um, it, it, in the developing countries, India particularly was using a large amount of that vaccine because it was being produced by Serum Institute of India. And um, they, the, the Indian authorities looked very hard, I would say, for cases and found very, very few. Mm-hmm. And the, the impression seems to be that in, in the uh, poorer countries, um, it seems to be rather uh, less common. And I can't explain why that should be, whether there are some genetic factors at play. I think we don't know, to be honest. But um, it does seem that um, TTS is much less of an issue in poorer countries, not just because people might find it more difficult to diagnose. I think it really is less common. Okay, and, and of course, why, clots are that very common. My next door neighbour uh, was booked for his AstraZeneca vaccine and got a massive blood clot the week before his vaccine. <laughs> so it was absolutely nothing to do with vaccine. But of course, had it been the week after, everyone would have said 100% for certain it was a vaccine side effect. So it's a, it's a very vexed issue, that one, isn't it? Um, I, want, I want to turn back to Australia, though. Um, um, I don't know if this is a fair question or not, but I'm going to put you on the spot. What do you think of our vaccine strategy so far? Um, good question. At the outset, um, there was a lot of criticism because Australia was um, seemed to be um, having too narrow a, a view of which vaccines they should go for, and they weren't they weren't pushing their way to the front of the queue. Well, uh, frankly, uh, as you could probably tell, I thought I found that to be quite an appalling sort of argument because um, I didn't see why uh, countries like you know, the US and uh, richer countries of the world should be pushing their way to the front of the queue at the expense of poorer countries. I wanted to see a more equitable system. So I didn't agree with that criticism. Uh, thank, the, can the, I, just, quest- I just want you to pause there because thank you for saying that because I got quite hot under the collar about this. It's not a race and that massive criticism that we privileged people here in Australia were not getting vaccinated. When we had zero COVID around, we should have got on and done it. With everyone forgetting that there were billions of people around the world who probably needed it a little more urgently than us. So thank you for underscoring that point. Sorry, I interrupted you. (laughs) No worries. Um, Then uh, there was criticism because we uh, didn't have quite uh, the range of possible vaccines at a time when we weren't sure how well the different vaccines were going to work. Uh, Part of that was uh, because the government had placed a lot of um, emphasis on the Australian vaccine that was being developed in Queensland and that eventually um, uh, was discontinued. Um, I, I didn't feel that... I, I wasn't that critical, to be honest, and I'm, I think it was always difficult for governments to make those sort of choices. I think as things have progressed, uh, what's emerged has been um, a rather sort of... Um, I, I guess a high-quality vaccination program nationally in the sense that we've got good coverage. We don't have um, the, the kind of problems that they have in the US, for example. Um, but the the state-by-state state business has been a problem. 
And I think we've, we've lacked national leadership in this field. And I think that applies not just to vaccination. I think that applies to the whole COVID response, that this um, fragmented approach um, hasn't really served us well. And I know there's a discussion underway at the moment about whether Australia should have a Centres for Disease Control. And um, I think um, absolutely that the, the a close look at what's happened during the pandemic um, would draw that conclusion that we, we, really, um, uh, we really should have had a central organisation that is overseeing and uh, and helping to guide policy um, at all levels. It makes, um, it makes absolute sense, doesn't it, that a management of something like a pandemic should not be a state-based but should be a nationwide response. I just want to comment, uh, lovely Lisette, a listener, has um, on the question about should we have known about pandemics coming up, which is not really the topic of this conversation, but she makes a note that there's a documentary on SBS called Pandemic, uh, which goes into exactly this from 2014, um, <laughs> talking about, and there are many, many other examples of people having said well in advance, of course this is going to happen sometime time. So thanks for pointing that out, Lisette, and uh, well aware that there were lots of people who knew that something like this was going to happen. Even the board game predicted it. <laughs> but coming back to here in Australia, Kim, um, we're now up to many, many, most people have had the primary course of two, many have had, people have had three. We're now talking about fourth shots. I've had mine. Um, um, and uh, it seems that we're restricting it a little bit um, around who's available. It's changed again recently. Like everything with COVID, it changes every week. What's your view about what we should be doing with vaccines here in Australia going forward? Um, I think that um, moving forward with a wider use of the fourth dose is inevitable. I was a little bit surprised by the way it's been handled, though, to be honest. Uh, clearly, the, the priority groups should be those who are um, at highest risk of severe disease. In other words, the elderly, uh, like me, um, or the um, people with um, underlying conditions. But then I would have probably included in that group um, frontline healthcare workers. Yes. And that's for a couple of reasons, apart from the fact that we don't want them to get sick. We also, um, if there's a, a, a wave of, of illness, we, we don't want them all being off sick or off because of um, um, you know, convalescent from, from uh, illness. Um, we want them um, to be able to sort of stay at work, which, yeah. um, which would help, and we don't want them to be giving virus to their patients if they are um, not symptomatic. So I think those are reasons why the frontline health workers should have been in the, in, in the front of, of the queue, as it were, for um, a fourth dose. Um, I would have included um, uh, school teachers, mm -hmm. actually. Yes. And, um, and that's um, a, a separate discussion, really, but um, I think the closure of schools has been a problem. And I think vaccinating school teachers, uh, to me, just made a lot of sense from the start, really. And for me personally, um, we've been running vaccine clinics for COVID for well over 12 months now. It's interesting how demand has actually dropped off recently, I think partly because of vaccine weariness, but also because of the restrictions over who's eligible for fourth doses. I'm not seeing, and this is just an anecdotal uh, response, so maybe you can clarify for me, but I'm not sure that we have a problem with supply at the moment. From my perspective, I can't see why we wouldn't offer fourth doses to all those people who are prepared to have them and who've had at least three or four months since their third dose, but perhaps you'd like to comment on that. Yes, I think, um, well, I agree that they should be wide, more widely available. I think that the timing is something that we really need to start to think about because it's the, the timing is kind of critical. 
There was um, a paper that came out from Pfizer some months ago. I say from Pfizer, but it was from a Californian group that was funded by Pfizer, basically um, making the claim that their vaccine um, uh, only lasts for six months and then you have to have another dose. Mm -hmm. And, um, in fact, when you look at that paper, it it showed that the uh, protection against infection and minor illness, you could say, um, does wane after six months. But the protection against severe illness persists and probably persists for 12 months and uh, even perhaps longer. The the, the immunological mechanisms associated with protection against severe disease are different and and are probably um, more long-lasting than protection against infection. And so I think that we should be thinking to the future and trying to imagine uh, an immunisation sort of strategy which will take us into the future because this virus is going to go away. Yes. And, and, and I think that after the third dose, it may be possible, and we don't have evidence for this, but I think it may be possible to go for um, a year for the young and healthy people yes. and um, perhaps six months for the, the ones who are at higher risk or the ones that I've mentioned. And then to get into a sort of a strategy where um, each year we change the formulation a bit, um, as several of the companies are already doing in the face of Omicron, but in a little bit like the flu situation. And um, and people um, tend to get vaccinated yearly. Now that's and what's it, for what's the adult it, population. Uh, yeah. And sorry, and what's it, what do you reckon the chances of the combined flu COVID vaccine annually going forward in the future? I think it's a possibility. I mean, we know we already give them at the same time mm-hmm. and just putting them in the same syringe probably doesn't make a lot of difference. I don't see it as being a, a huge difference because I'm um, uh, more, I suppose, more more focused on just getting the right vaccine to people. Yes. Um, if you have to have two injections, I, if, you know, I wouldn't personally be bothered. I had both of them on the same day <laughs> a couple of months ago. And Kim, time is, time is catching up with, there's a very quick question from a texter who's um, sent this in. I, I don't know the answer to this i've never seen it but it's asking a question is tinnitus a vaccine side effect whoa not one i've seen i haven't heard of that nor have i i haven't heard of that okay. um and uh, it, it's uh, no I, I haven't seen that listed anywhere i'm sorry no don't don't apologize i felt the same but i thought i'd ask you because it came in as a text question tinnitus is such a for people who don't know that ghastly ringing noise in your ears when you've been to the concert of the Rolling Stones without earplugs and you get that ringing noise in your ears for the next couple of days, that's a sign you've damaged your auditory nerve. So keep that in mind. And long-term tinnitus, a very common problem from long-term exposure to loud noises, not as far as I know, nor as far as Kim knows, due to vaccines. Um, Kim, thank you so much for your time. It's been great talking to you. We could do this forever, but we'll have to stop. Uh, Thank you and enjoy the day in Janjuk. Thanks very much. Thanks for your interest, Nick. Appreciate it. That was Dr Kim Mulholland from the Melbourne Children's Research Institute, the WHO. Um, Wonderful man. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.